Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed wherever you are using the Newcastle Libraries app. So why not put borrowing at your fingertips? We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land on which we live, the Awabakal and Waramai people, who were the first storytellers of this nation and are the proud survivors of more than 200 years of continuing dispossession. This is the Broken Chain series presented by Newcastle Libraries Real and local artist Damien Lenane. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed throughout the series are solely attributed to the host and guests of the program and do not reflect the official policy or position of the City of Newcastle. The following episode of Broken Chains contains coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to another episode of Broken Chains, a prison podcast. My name is Damien Lenane and I was sentenced to two years imprisonment in November 2015 for crimes the sentencing magistrate described as vigilante action. Broken Chains is recorded on the traditional land of the Awabakal people and I'd like to pay my respects to elders, especially considering how disproportionately the prison system affects Indigenous Australians. Every week on Broken Chains we're going to be talking about a different issue relating to the prison system and on today's episode I'll be joined by another former inmate, Jacob, to talk about mental health in prison. Yes, it was broken. Uh, hi, Jacob. Uh, thanks for being on the show today. Good morning, mate. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, no, it's uh, great to have you here. Why don't we start with just, uh, telling the audience a bit about yourself, like where you're in prison, uh, how long and however much you want to share about that. So I started going into the systems when I was 17 years old. Um, I think I was charged with maybe a couple of counts of assault, public nuisance. Um, basically what happened was when I was younger, I was caught up in some silly stuff and I was in one neighbourhood and some other guys were in a different neighbourhood and we used to have a few fights and things like that. But we heard that these guys, you know, were going to be at this place. So we went there and um, unfortunately... It got pretty messy, ugly, and I got charged with a few counts of assault. And I was on bail. I was on bail for a couple of days. I think I was on a downward spiral at that point in my life, you know. I I think I was on bail for three days. And the next weekend came along. I got on the piss. I robbed somebody. And I ended up waking up in the watch house. So, yeah, I spent, I know, seven or ten days there. Went to the uh, Brisbane Boys Yard. And, you know, I was only pretty young. I didn't know what to expect or what was going to happen there. Basically, you know, it was just all the sort of stuff that happens in prison. Uh, just waking up at certain times every day, going to musters, getting fed at certain times, getting told when to go to bed. Well, unfortunately, when I was there, I, um, I suffered institutional sexual abuse. I was abused by a um, prison officer there. So that was pretty hard for me at that time. You know, I only just finished high school, basically, and uh, was just playing footy with my mates. I was actually playing footy at the time, you know, going to the beach, just hanging out, hanging out with chicks, doing whatever. And the next thing you know, I'm sort of, yeah, in that lockdown situation. Um, at that same time, you know, I had my father who was in prison. He was um, taken away from me at the age of 10. You know, we were writing to each other. So I was lucky I had some support that he was writing to me. Anyway, after the abuse, I turned 18. And um, in Queensland at that time, any 
somebody who was under 16 went to like a juvie and then 17 year olds only went to the boys yard. That's why I went to the boys yard. But you're still classified as an adult for some reason. Anyway, when you turn 18, you went to the men's. And so I went to the men's on my 18th birthday. At that time, you know, I was, thought I was pretty tough. I thought I was pretty cool. On that day I got there, I was sitting in reception wing. They're like, oh, well, this is what you get. It was like a reception pack, you know, two space. The uh, prison guard at my prison called it the uh, prison show bag, that one. Yeah, the old show bag, <laughs> mate. And uh, it was a bit of a different experience. And you know, obviously what I've been through uh, in the boys' yard, I was like, I didn't know what to expect. So I'd get in there, I was like, oh, well, this is going to happen again or... Um, I didn't know, you know, and I got a I got a packet of white oaks because we weren't allowed to smoke in the boys' yard. Oh right, I thought yeah. that was pretty cool. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> they they just got rid of smoking when I went into the system. But I, yeah, I was my first time in prison was twenty nine, so I've got no idea about um about juvenile detention or, or what that's like. That must have been really tough, especially with that that experience with the prison guard. I'm, yeah, I'm really sorry that happened to you. No, that's alright, mate. It was just um just I suppose what happened. Yeah. Sort of got into the yard and sort of met a few people. I was, I suppose I was a little bit lucky there, you know, because my father was in prison and he he had some um, friends who were in that prison system at that time. So got in there and it took me a couple of weeks to get to where his friend was. Um, but yeah, we ended up linking up heaps of training. And then when I was in there, you know, it was it was, a, it was different to the boys' yard. It was, you know, there was men and, and it was different rules because we didn't really know how prison really works when you're in the boys' yard. It was, it's completely different, mm. completely different, you know. Um, talking to screws or things like that, you know, it's just like completely different. So, yeah, things changed when I got there. I started training a lot, just trying to focus on, on getting out. And I spent about two or three months out and I got out, I was on bail. I finished that and um, I suppose when I got out from what I'd been through, I sort of started getting drinks, started getting the party scene, started getting involved in gangs. Um, soon enough, I was uh, back in trouble again. I was on bail. I was back on suspended sentence, I was back on probation, I was back on parole, um, I was back in prison. And um, in that same time frame, you know, I ended up joining a club. I ended up being in a high-ranking member in a, in a club. So, you know, things were pretty cool before I went to prison, you know. It was it was before in Queensland a thing called the Vlad Laws. Uh, I can't remember the exact name of it. It was the Vicious Clause Association. Not the short term, it's Vlad, I can't remember the acronym. But, yeah, so when I got locked up after that, you know, we were, Partying, having a good time every weekend, riding around with our mates, doing whatever we're doing. The lab laws come in, and a couple of days after they'd come in, I got locked up again. I was already on parole. No bikies, no, no um, yeah, gang members could get watch house bail, so you had to, there was a certain procedure, and I was already on parole anyway, so there was no way I was getting bail. I went straight into um, lockdown, into isolation. So I spent, I think, seven days watch house, seven days went to BCC, Brisbane Correctional Centre, straight into detention unit, spent seven days there and then went from there over to um, Woodsley Correctional Centre and it was straight into 22-hour lockdown. We had to wear pink, it sounds like a joke. Uh, we used to make a joke with that we looked pretty in pink, but uh, <laughs> it wasn't that funny yeah, yeah, at yeah. the time, you know. Mm. Do you know what the reason for that is? Uh, we, we we don't have that in New South Wales. I always thought it was funny. The um our prison uniforms jungle green, which was uh, ironic for us because I was at a prison that was surrounded by woodland. So you know, if I wanted to run away, I was in the perfect coloured uniform. But uh, it, it, do you know why they've the uniforms pink there? Or hey, there was a certain um, Queensland premier who just had it in for gangs and things like that. So not only did we have to wear pink, um, we're, and we're in the twenty two hour lockdown, we're only allowed to have one phone call a day. A six, five or six-minute phone call, uh, no contact visits, no TVs in our cells, 
no training exercise equipment in the yards, no books. Um, we were basically just fed through a slot and made to sit in our cell all day for two and a half months. I was only in there for two and a half months straight. That's including watch out and BCT. You know, and some some of them days when I was sitting in there, my mental health was I was struggling. You know, mm. I think and also with them charges because of the that Vlad law, I was looking at twenty five years. So I was looking at twenty five years of sitting in isolation. I was really starting to doubt myself and what I was going to do with my the rest of my life. I was like, this is it. My dad's in prison. He's serving a sixteen and a half year sentence. I'm sitting in prison and I'm looking at twenty five. It was pretty hard for me. I was sort of starting to realise who my true friends were. Yep, I know how you feel there. You, you, yeah, I, I've told a couple of people. You, you find out who your real friends are when you when you go to jail. That's for sure. Yeah, you find the case most of the time is yeah, you thought who you thought was your best friends. It didn't happen to me because I didn't have a missus at the time. But I think so many other guys in there. You know, their best mates would be sleeping with their missus. You know, just see so many bad things happen. You people losing everything. Their missus running away, taking everything. Um, you know, your friends are doing shit goes to you on the outside. But I, I got out of there and um, I got into a normal unit and I served the rest of my sentence um, in mainstream. Uh, I was lucky, you know, I, I sort of got a job and I trained, I trained twice a day, worked. So the days just went pretty quickly in there and, and I got out, you know, so that was my second sentence. Mm-hmm. But when I got out, you know, that lifestyle didn't change for me. I was still in the games, but I was on an association. My dad was actually coming up for parole and we actually evolved in the same gangs um, before he went in. Uh, you know, I used to, I grew up visiting my dad in prison. I grew up receiving from uh, jail phone calls, you know. Yeah, it was, it was um, normal to you, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty normal. I was, my mates were going to jail. I was going to jail. That lifestyle was very normal for me. So I didn't really know much different. I didn't have any other people sort of telling me, mate, there's different ways in life to do things, you know, you could try this. When my dad was taken away from me, um, my mum and dad hadn't split up at that time, but um, I grew up in housing commission. You know, there's a lot of drinking, domestic violence. You know, some people can probably relate to that. Maybe some people can't, but that's just how I grew up and sort of made me the person that I am today. And so when I got out of prison, you know, I started getting back into the exact same thing. Uh, I was on parole for a bit, so I pulled my head in a little bit, but as soon as that finished, I was straight back into what I was doing before. You know, dad was getting out and his parole officer gave him the opportunity. So best case scenario was if I was caught talking to him and associating with the with the gang, I wouldn't be able to speak to him. Worst case was they could put him back in prison. So I thought, you know what? I spent my whole life sort of waiting for my dad to get out of prison. You know, I looked up to him so much and I loved him and I was just, I didn't want to have to be put in that position. So I thought, fuck it, I'm just going to leave that life behind. It wasn't easy, you know. It wasn't easy to walk away from it. I felt like I lost all my friends. Well, I lost 95% of my friend circle. Went through a really bad time, you know. I was fucking drinking. I was on drugs. Yeah, I was going for, through a really, really bad time. But it was good because I had my dad on the outside, but he was still on an association. I mean, he was living like so far away. I mean, the non-association didn't matter for us because I left the club. But it was just hard because he was so far away, and I was on bail at the time because of charges. So I was, had to. I did actually move down to closer to him to be with him, but I had to travel all the time to come back up for psych appointments, um, anger management, uh, all this sort of stuff. And about three and a half years, so Dad was getting out, and around that same time, there was, there was the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Sexual Abuse, and um, someone told me about it, and I um, started thinking, you know, maybe I could tell my story so I started telling my story and 
around that same time, I started working for an organisation who helps survivors of institutional child abuse to start um, their healing journey, to start telling their story, to start the litigation process. And uh, last year in September, um, they gave me their blessing for Dad and I to go out and start our own organisation. So Dad and I are now both, we're both survivors of institutional child abuse and uh, we've both been through the prison system. So we've been helping a lot of guys out in this space. I've helped over 1,700 survivors to start telling their story. Wow, that's really impressive. Yeah, thank you, mate. I was just uh, really amazed to hear that because um, you're referring to the anti-bikey laws they brought in and that, that even had like impacts for us in New South Wales, which uh, probably I uh, don't have time to go into. But like, uh, that's crazy that you couldn't associate with your, your own father because you were both like you know, involved in the same club. I, I didn't know they could stop you from... Asso- I knew they could have stopped you with associating with other gang members, but I thought that maybe there was an exception if you were like, you know, uh, immediate family. But but no, I guess not then. Well, that's crazy. Yeah, mate, it was, it was very difficult. It was a very hard time in my life. It was one of the hardest times. But you know, since I started telling my story, it changed my life. And I am um, started this organisation, so we've got our own business. I'm studying at university, which is uh, how I met you for our university group. Um, we're mentoring young kids in my community to not go down the same path that I did through boxing programs. I'm also boxing to have a fight next month on the 25th of June. So life's a lot different for me. But them, them first couple of years, mate, my mental health, getting out of prison, just going through the whole prison system, you know, it's yeah. one of the hardest things I've ever done. Yes, it was broken. might share my first experience with mental health in prison and then you can uh, tell me what uh, exactly what happened to you but like um so I went into the prison system and um I'd uh, been carrying a lot of trauma from childhood abuse myself which is it, it, what indirectly led to my crime and yeah I had all this anger bottled up and it was only um after I committed the crime and but before I got arrested I realized I, ha- I was carrying all this trauma still I, I started getting uh, therapy while I was on bail and and it was it was yeah. really beneficial for me to actually talk about what had happened to me for the first time and I um the therapist I was seeing actually wrote a letter for the court you know Damien's been making tremendous uh, progress on th- in, in therapy and I, I think that actually like helped reduce the um, uh, non-parole period of my sentence. Unfortunately, I still went into prison. I went in there and I had the mandatory um, appointment with the uh, prison psychologist. <laughs> Ironically, I'd actually just finished a degree majoring in psychology. Towards the end of it, I realized I didn't want a career in psychology, but a bit too stubborn to quit anything. So I, I finished it. So I had a bit to talk about with the psychologist and we, we had a good chat. But then I, I said, you know, I've been getting therapy on bail and I, I found it's really beneficial and, I, and I'd really like to continue that uh, while I'm in prison. I think it'd be um, really good for my mental health. The prison psychologist, she actually got this really sad expression on her face and, and she said something that I, I think about all the time. It still kind of haunts me. And Damien, everybody in here would benefit from therapy, but unfortunately there's no funding for that. She went on to explain that um, her job was just to assess whether people were um, suicidal, dangerous, or if she thought they were going to try and escape. And uh, yeah, there was there was no therapy for inmates on remand, uh, which I started in the remand wing, um, even though I'd already been sentenced, and um, uh, or same in in um, minimum security as well. And I eventually got uh, classified, and then I got moved from remand to minimum security. Long story short, I got some. Um, really bad news from the outside which as I'm sure you're aware in prison you can't really do anything uh, when there's a problem on the in the outside world. I, I had a really huge breakdown in there. Prison I went to didn't have a psychologist at all and they had to transfer me from Glen Innes which is where I was to um, Mid-North Coast Correctional just to see a psychologist. 
when I got there, I explained the situation and they said, I don't really understand why they've sent you here because um, there's nothing we can do for you. There's, there's no funding for therapy for inmates in minimum security. And, and even if there was, we have a policy of uh, not doing any therapy related to childhood sexual assault. She said it is kind of ironic. The, uh, the reason for that is uh, you need a really stable environment when you're dealing with childhood trauma like that. And prison isn't a stable environment. It's just uh, contraindicated to get therapy for it while you're in prison. And, and she went on to tell me that the only thing they could do for me mental health wise was give me the phone number of somebody to call once I got out. And I was just completely amazed like uh, that there's just no like mental health treatment in there. The psychologists themselves, they weren't uh, unkind, but I mean, they were just uh, bound by the system. Like we'd like to treat you, but but we can't. There's we're, and resources are stretched, and we've got no funding for that. Like I'm curious, like what was your experience in like? Uh, I, I assume you know you told me you went in, and uh, they didn't even let you have books. So I'm guessing there wasn't any therapy either uh, when you went in. So the best thing that we got was I don't know if you heard of them, um, the official visitors. Uh, I've got an idea, but yeah, well, tell me anyway. Basically, it's just somebody who is uh, from outside the prison comes in, and if there's any problems going on, uh, you can talk to them. Um, basically, you know, I just went down there. To be honest, I can't even really remember what I told them. But that was about as much support as we got. And, you know, a lot of us were struggling, you know. Being in isolation is very difficult. I don't know if you've had any isolation, but, um, yeah, it's not easy. So you're basically just sitting there doing head miles. When you're getting basically nothing, like not even a TV to try and keep yourself entertained, and you get two hours out of your cell, and when you get two hours out of your cell, they take the exercises equipment away from you. I mean, it's not much. So you don't get much in prison regardless. Like you get a chin-up and a dip bar, um, or you might get um, some pads, or depending on which prison um, you're in, you know. But um, I know that in uh, protection, or well, I don't know that, but, I'm only assuming that these guys still get exercise equipment. So, like, they're basically, you know, they'll sort of putting us in a category that we're worse than somebody who's a kid toucher or things like that. So, our mental health, you know, there's a lot of things that twist it, we're twisting us up, um, and especially some of these other gangs, you know, we're, we're having um, drums with them on the outside of prison, and they just throw us into one section when we're all together. It was a really different experience. But you know, I've seen a lot of other guys in there when I got out of that um, unit and then just into, back into the mainstream. You know, there's a lot of guys in there that do have mental issues, but the only thing they get is medications just that just make them numb or I don't mean to be rude to anyone, but they're like zombies, you know. They're just like even all these sericals or oh, I can't remember the name of the other drugs, but these guys are just walking around like literally just like zombies, just like putting on weight, not exercising, just like, that's not good for your mental health either, you know, like, I was lucky I used to train a lot, so that was, used to keep me going, so keep me going, I'd always train, but I see a lot of these guys, man, it's just, um, it's really sad to see that some of the conditions that these guys are in, and, and they, all they do for you is just give you medication to just basically shut you up. Yeah, and I, I know exactly what you mean because that was my experience. They um they told me I wasn't eligible for therapy, but they tried to put me on um I can't remember the like the actual name, but like colloquially everyone called it Vanza. You were either on Ceres or Vanza or both. And most people were on both. Yeah. So there was no therapy, but they tried to put me on this drug and I, I took it. 
it gave me really bad mood swings. I actually um, went to, because I had the medication call every day, and I went, went up and I said to the nurse, I'm like, I, I don't want to take this anymore. And, and she actually got real narky with me. She's like, you have to take your meds. And I'm like, but they're making me worse. I was only in isolation briefly when I first had the, the breakdown in prison. They put me in, uh, yeah, like in isolation cell. And and I remember like, I thought that was just really ironic. Like I, I'm, my mental health is suffering. So the way they're going to treat that is putting me in a cell where, and there was, it was locked down 24 hours a day. We didn't get any time out at all. And I'm like, the way they're treating my depression is by removing me from friends, uh, phone calls with family, sunlight, and the ability to exercise. And that, that's, that's the treatment for depression. And, and I mean, and all that, the only reason they put me in there was because they, they didn't want to have to fill out a, a whole heap of forms and deal with an inquiry if I had killed myself, which I wasn't going to do. But I mean, yeah, that was, uh, they didn't care about my mental health. They just cared about protecting themselves. And I, um, met a guy uh, when I was on my travels in the prison system because I got moved around for like appointments and appeals and stuff and um, I met a guy in Cessnock and he um, told me how much he was struggling with his mental health and he said he was deliberately not telling the establishment, the, the nurses or the guards about it because he knew if they found out he was suffering from mental health issues, they, they were going to punish him. He had his own cell, but you can't have your own cell if, if you've got mental health issues. You need to be in a two-out, like a two-man cell, but, uh, as you're probably aware yourself, but for the benefit of people who are listening, that's uh, basically so uh, there's, there's less chance you'll kill yourself because there's somebody else in the cell who can hit the panic button, you know, if, um, if you do that. And so he, they, they knew, he knew that the only thing they'd do to help him if he reported his mental illness was um, either put him in isolation, which was going to make him worse, or put him in a two-man cell, so take away a bit of his like independence and, uh, and personal space, and both of those were going to make his mental health worse. We didn't have official visitors as such. The only person I had to talk to really was, was the chaplain. Uh, he was a nice enough guy, but I mean, prisons don't need chaplains. Prisons need like professional mental health workers. But I'd go and talk to him every week, even though I'm a devout atheist, uh, just because he was the only person we had to talk to. And so, yeah, I can uh, I appreciate what like the, just the, the the support, just anyone like an official visitor could have. Yeah, it's, they definitely don't make it easy for you in there. Yeah, it would have been good to be able to speak to somebody. Yeah, they don't make it um, easy at all, you know. Yeah, I think that um, all the mental health stuff that can really get to you know, obviously there's a high suicide rate um, on the <clears throat> on the outside of prison, but um, there's also uh, a pretty high rate of suicide within the prisons. You know, there is a lot of guys who haven't made it due to whatever it is. You know, it could be childhood abuse, mm. could be um, some sort of trauma. But when you're sort of in the headspace of not being able to get over that and getting no support when you're already serving a life sentence for your trauma and you just made to sit in the cell or just get medication thrown at you, it's, um, it's not really good. You know, I see a lot of guys get, you know, with um, issues from prison and then get out. It can be even worse. And then, uh, you know, guys commit suicide once they get out after, you know, how they were treated in there. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me, like, because there's so little support in there. And then, um, like I said, the only thing that he told me they could do for me was give me the phone number of someone to call when I got out. Yes, it was broken. I did eventually make time to see a therapist, but trying to get my life back on track, I didn't actually start getting therapy for several months 
after I got out of prison, even though I needed it, because I, I was getting it like twice a week before I went in. But once I got out, I um, it was hard enough just to rebuild my life and deal with like the parole restrictions. And, you know, I had to go meet with parole every week. I didn't have a car at the time so, and that the parole office was out of the way. So that that was like a several hour event. Uh, just getting to parole and and like you know so uh, like yeah they gave me this phone number of someone to call and um but I, I I didn't have the time you know so there's there was very little support in there and then on the outside uh, parole just wanted to make sure I I wasn't committing any more crimes they they didn't really care if I was getting better or not yeah it's not easy mate yeah yeah what have your experiences getting help once once you've been released uh, since you got out yeah there's obviously the um I don't know if everyone knows this but there's a mental health care plan I'm currently on a mental health care plan. Just basically go down to your GP and tell them that you're what, what you're going through, and they can most times help you out with ten free. I think it could be even more now, ten or fifteen free sessions with a mental health practitioner. Whether that's I do mine over Zoom, or you go in and see them, whatever you feel more comfortable doing. Um, there, there is support out there. There's definitely support out here, you know, but you you got to make them steps yourself mm. to to want to engage and, and want to move forward and I think it's really important you know I don't know what this audience is going to be but if it's lots of prisoners or anyone in, in, in general who's struggling with their mental health you need to talk about it um, because if you don't you know it can lead to maybe substance abuse depression um, anxiety you know I still struggle with some of these things myself to this day you know but you just got to try and if you're having a bad day just Maybe just have that bad day and then the next day you got to try and move forward and try and speak to somebody, you know, because it is common for people to have these battles, have their down days, crash, you know, people crash, people burn out. But yeah, since I've been out, I suppose I've had bad days. I've had times when I've burned out, crashed. But yeah, I sort of just pick myself up, dust myself off, try and talk to somebody, but definitely talk to somebody. But I don't try to do that. I highly recommend to jump on a mental health care plan and talk about it yeah no it's it's funny the um the best thing you can do for your mental health on the outside is um is talking to someone but yeah on the inside keeping it from the establishment is important in my experience but i I know exactly what you mean because i i got eventually got on the mental health care plan myself and i i ended up sending a strongly uh worded letter to the um minister for corrections about about a few things it was actually about uh, three weeks before i got out i was, I was just summing up my experiences and I, I had a lot to say about education and rehabilitation, but I actually said to him, like, you know, I, I was on a mental health care plan um, before I went into prison and that was really beneficial for me because <laughs> I lost my job, uh, like my main job when I, I was on bail, so I, I couldn't afford therapy. You know, it's like the mental health care plan, uh, like really, uh, yeah, has such a positive effect on the community. Um, some of our most vulnerable people who need mental health treatment uh, are in prison. Uh, why can't we have a mental health care plan for people in prison? I got a letter back from uh, him or one of his staffers and he, he just kind of blew me off. He actually, his reply to that was, um, the mental health care plan is run by Medicare and inmates uh, do not have access to Medicare. And I'm like, well, that doesn't answer my question. You know, you, you could give inmates access to Medicare. You could w- make a workaround. But he was just uh, like, yeah, just trying to like draw at straws, trying to find a reason why he could say um, that's not feasible. And it'd be so easy for them to, to put mental health support in prison. Don't ask me why, but they, they just don't. I, I think it's just apathy. They, they don't care. But um, like, I can't really wrap my head around why 
they don't want prisoners to get mental health support because I mean it's not just about the prisoner it, it's it's about victims as well if, you, if you're supportive of victims you want to make sure there aren't any in the future and and the best way to do that is to make sure people get the help they need and deal with like anger issues and stuff and there's just you really have to um, re- rehabilitate yourself. Like, yeah, I took care of my therapy myself once I got out. And, um, but yeah, because the, yeah, the system just does not care about your mental health at all. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. Yeah, I've just seen, uh, you know, obviously uh, a lot of guys sh- struggling with mental health, plus trying to break down that barrier. You know, when you're in there and, you know, there's a, a unit full of 50 guys, everyone's trying to get on the phone. Um, you know, some days are hot and, you know, sometimes there's not, not enough of anything to go around. Um, that time on the phone is very important. And if you're, you know, something's going wrong on the outside and you can't get on that phone, and maybe there's only one phone, sometimes the phones are broken. Mm. Um, so you don't, you don't get a chance to get that outside support, which is generally a six to 10 minute phone call from your family with um, no other sort of support in there. So, you, so, so things happen, you know. It's hot, you get... Your mental health is struggling. Team lots of different fight because I reckon, you know, cause from this breakdown of uh, mental health issues, maybe with not being able to speak to families. So, seen some pretty ugly fights in there. And just guys just walking around like zombies, as I said before. And lots of guys are just given this medication. And um, I know through our organisation, About Time for Justice, a lot of these guys do have mental health issues and they're struggling with them. And unfortunately, there's nothing in there to to get the help they need. It's just it's quite sad. So originally I was seeing the chaplain and then um, ironically um, made a really good friend in prison, a guy who um, got sent in for his first time like in his 30s and um, his day job on the outside, he, he was actually a, like a mentor and counsellor and so uh, he was actually, I started actually getting, um, you know, I tell people I got therapy in prison and then I have to clarify that um, the therapy was from another inmate who happened to have skills as a therapist uh, which is a... Yeah. <laughs> A story in itself. I used to do photorealistic drawings as a way to make money in prison, and um, so I, I used to trade them to him for therapy. And and he told me he was finding it frustrating. One of the things he found was that um, there were definitely like a couple of people that yeah wanted help, like myself. But a lot of the time there was just there's a lot of toxic masculinity in prison, and uh, people didn't want to put their hand up and, and kind of, you know, look weak. And there's just that, I mean, this this is something that persists on, on very much in the outside as well. You know, men, men just don't want to talk about yeah don't men don't want to see a doctor in general they don't want to talk you know be a man we, we don't we don't talk about our feelings you, you don't cry and, and stuff yeah you know, like my, my friend who was like kind of offering therapy found that he there weren't a lot of takers and it was so there, there, there was also that issue as well like it, they definitely need to get mental health support in there but they also need uh to like really encourage people because maybe like just getting it in there isn't isn't enough mate like mate, they, we need to break down these barriers somehow and this stigma with toxic masculinity because um yeah i definitely found that that was a that could have been a potential barrier did, did you have any experiences with with anything like that yourself or, or seeing other people with it rather yeah definitely yeah for sure 100% through the work that we're doing at the moment we're obviously seeing a lot of guys um, with the mental health issues and when they're getting out of prison we're recommending them to jump on a mental health care plan um, and try and try and talk talk about whatever their experiences are so yeah I'll just really encourage anyone who, who is listening to this if you are struggling um, there is always support um, and if you want to reach out to our organisation for anything about time for justice to talk about mental health or 
airtime in prison or anything like that. Yeah, we're we're more than willing to talk to anyone who wants to have a yarn about their time in prison. More than happy. Yeah, no, we definitely need um, more organisations like yours that uh, help you know, form that bridge between victims of abuse. So, um, yeah, what's your um, organisation's name and, and details for that? Uh, so our organisation is called uh, About Time for Justice. So you can find us on uh, Facebook, Instagram. And we also have a website, it's just abouttimeforjustice.com. So, yeah, we're, we've been um, working this space for a couple of years now. 95% of the guys that we are helping out are in prison. So we're working with prisoners daily, you know, we're receiving jail phone calls daily. And lots of these guys do have mental health issues and we want them to get out, we want them to win, we want them to beat the system. It's very, very hard to go into the system and, and get out and stay out and stop that recidivism. Um, and a big part of that probably is mental health issues, you know, because when you get out, you don't know how to deal with it, you don't know how to address it. And you're still stuck in that same cycle. It's so hard to break. Well, once you've broken it, it's, um, it's, easier but until you know how to equip yourself with them tools which I think you know you can learn through um, counselling speaking to mental health practitioners uh, it, it can be quite hard you know when I started um, telling my story and um, I was still on bail for these charges you know I was going through lots of these sessions anger management counselling and um, at the start of it you know I was sort of still caught up in that lifestyle and then I left and then I started thinking about it you know like what what is normal and what's not is this is this mind mindset is this how everyone thinks or i was just so confused and i didn't understand i think i probably had some mental health issues thinking that the way i was acting was normal you know but yeah after sort of receiving help from these mental health practitioners through the counseling and the management cycle all that stuff it sort of started making sense you know so it's, it's really important to if you want to try and Feed that cycle, try and get your mental health better. Yeah, yeah. There's no, I don't think there's any exceptions to, to not, not talk about it. You have to talk, talk about it 100%. Uh, the first time I got arrested, I was 29, and um, oh, my, my employment was a bit sketchy, but I, I was holding down jobs. I, I had relatively stable jobs. I, I was going to university, and you know, I thought I was a well-rounded individual. And um, all this time, I, 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 you know, when I was 13 years old, I was um, my my father was quite violent. And I, long story short, I I, I ran away from home, and I, I was so sick of being assaulted that like between the age of 13 and 29, I, I wouldn't leave my house w- without a knife or a weapon of some kind. And that was because I uh, it wasn't because I was like, oh, look, look at me. I'm so tough. I've got this weapon. It was because I was scared and I was I was afraid of everything. By the time I was 29, I'd been carrying a, a knife for, for like, you know, 16 years. And, and that was that was normal. And I, I was I was going to university. I had a job and I, I thought I was a well-rounded individual. And it wasn't until like I um, yeah, started talking to someone where I realized like, holy crap, I, I, I'm, I'm some guy who 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 like, you know, carries a knife to Coles to, to go, you know, pick up some milk, you know, uh, like uh, this, this isn't right. And uh, yeah, but uh, that, that, just, that had, you know, been ingrained to me, like as a child, I, I didn't feel protected. And, uh, but yeah, so by the time I was like approaching middle age, I, I, I still thought that was normal. And um, it wasn't until I started talking about it that I realized that, um, yeah, I had a few issues in more ways than one. And, and um, thankfully, since I, you know, recommenced eventually I was able to recommence therapy after I got out and eventually like I actually used up my mental health care plan for the year and I remember my therapist said uh Damien I, I think you're doing pretty well now um it, it's I don't think you need to come back and get another plan just 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 keep doing what you're doing I, I think you're all right and it was a, that was a really um 
defining moment in my life because I was like, well, you know, I, I still I still get anxiety. You know, I, I have PTSD from my childhood and, you know, you, you always kind of carry that. You, 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 you can't get rid of it. But, um, you know, you can manage it well and you can be aware of your emotions and, and your anger and um, you can definitely find ways to deal with it. But that was uh, that was really important for me to like when when my therapist said that, you know, you, you don't have to come back. I'm like, wow, I've 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 really turned a corner because, um, yeah, there's uh, there was definitely a long time where I felt like I just had to carry all the, the trauma myself. I'm like, no, no, I'm tough. I can deal with this. And, and you don't have to carry it by yourself. In fact, you shouldn't. You, you, you really need to tell someone about things and I mean like like I said you there's no mental health support in prison so you know you hide your mental health from the establishment but if you can find a close friend in there uh, who you can confide in yeah it's it's still definitely uh, good to talk about it to someone 100% mate yeah any support just get, even getting it out it doesn't have to be a mental health practitioner you know just getting it out and starting to heal it's very important and you got to do you got to work with what you got when you're in there don't you yeah, no, yeah, you definitely have to work with uh, what you got. Like I said, I was I was seeing the chaplain because uh, he was the only person to talk to, and then I, yeah, eventually they the, the the prison got a therapist in the form of an inmate, and I was um I was writing a lot because I found um you know writing you know I was able to put my thoughts down like you know, keep keeping a journal and, and things and just um getting my feelings out through like creative writing and stuff. And now I actually, you know, it's, it's great to hear you've, you're running this organization that supports prisoners because uh, as I um, would have told you recently, I've um, recently taken over as the editor of um, Paper Chained. I was quite frustrated in prison because I was, I was writing all these uh, things and I, and I didn't have anywhere to send them to. So when I got out, I, um, I found out about this writing journal just started up, aimed at prisoners. It just started up after I was released. And so I got peripherally involved with them. And earlier this year, the editor of that, who'd been running it for the last four years, said she couldn't do it anymore due to family commitments. And I've taken that over because I, I know how much difference that can make. I mean, I can't change the system, but I can change it for a few people. And I, I'm just having some aware that people can you know, kind of post thoughts, feelings, creative writing, poetry and art to um, and, and then seeing it in print once, you know, we print the magazine and, and post it into prisons. I know how much difference that can make. And it's just it's just those little things that can really uh, make a difference for someone's sentence in life. And uh, yeah, so I, I really understand and appreciate what you're doing for people because, yeah, I, I, I totally get it. Thank you so much, mate. I appreciate everything that you're doing too, you know. Yes, it was broken. Cool. Well, it's definitely been great to have you on the program today. And uh, yeah, thanks for chatting and sharing that with us. Because yeah, it can be difficult to talk about for, at first. That's something I found is that the more I talked about uh, what happened to me and uh, my experiences, that the less painful it became. And now it's talking about childhood trauma for me now is 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 kind of talking like any subject it just it's it's it used to be this huge cloud over my head and now it's like I can bring it up and not even think twice about it and sometimes I bring it up and people are like oh my god I'm sorry I didn't I didn't think you were going to tell me that and I'm like oh no no it's not it's not difficult to talk about anymore hopefully we can raise some more awareness about uh, mental health and the importance uh, of talking about your experiences for people in general as as well as people um, impacted by the prison system yeah I agree mate definitely Thank you for your time today. I've been on your podcast. Also, for anyone who might be interested, uh, we have a podcast about crime for justice that we're called Survivor Stories. And it's for um, survivors of um, child abuse, survivors of the prison system, survivors of uh, drug addictions, any sort of domestic violence and things like that. So 
Um, Damien's actually going to be a guest on our show also, so I'm looking forward to doing that with you, mate. Yeah, me too. I yeah, I think that's pretty cool. We're being on each other's podcasts, and uh, but uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I'll talk to you soon, I guess. Yeah. No worries, mate. Thank you. But she was no more broken than a spear with a chipped blade. Marks like those were signs of strength. Marks like those were signs. Of Well, thanks for listening to Broken Chains and special thanks to Jacob Little for being on the program today. Don't forget to check out Jacob's podcast, Survivor Stories. Broken Chains is hosted by myself, Damien Lenane, and is produced by Newcastle Libraries. Music is provided by Louisa Magrix. Check out more of her work at soundcloud.com forward slash music LXM. On the next episode of Broken Chains, We're going to be talking to a former prisoner about how he used art to help cope during his sentence. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to smile, and we'll see you next time. Dimes of strength. Marks like those were signs. Dimes of strength. This has been a Newcastle Libraries Real production. As a companion to this podcast series, the exhibition of Broken Chains, Prisoners Unlocking Potential, is available to view until the 7th of November 2021. You can experience this exhibition either online through the Newcastle Libraries website or in person at Walls End Library. COVID health orders and restrictions may affect access across our branches, so please check before planning your visit. Links to the exhibition and research for the topics discussed in this episode are in the show notes.